KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. This is KYW News Radio in depth. I'm Charlotte Reese. Election Day in America was more like Election Month, and obviously everyone was focused on the presidential race and even the Senate. But there was something else on the ballot in a number of states that turned out to be really significant. From New Jersey to Arizona to especially Oregon, voters pretty uniformly voted to loosen drug laws. So what happened and what does that mean for the country? What does it mean for the war on drugs? Scott Burris is a professor of law and public health at Temple University. He's also the director of the Center for Public Health Law Research. I think one of the really interesting storylines from this election was that citizens in a number of states got to vote on ballot measures for drug laws. And it was red, blue states, and it seems like it really didn't matter, right? We had New Jersey, Montana, states that legalized recreational marijuana. And then we had Mississippi go for medical marijuana, and Oregon was just, you know, steps way further. But can you break down kind of what we saw happen to drug laws across the country on election? day. Did anything kind of stick out to you? Well, probably the most dramatic change is in Oregon, which has basically adopted what we call the uh, the Portuguese model. About 15 years ago now, Portugal decided it was going to radically change how it managed illicit drugs. And the change was essentially to take criminal justice largely out of it. So, Instead of making individual drug possession a crime, or instead of treating it as a criminal matter, Portugal decided that they would treat it as, as a kind of behavioral health matter. And so when they found, when the police or anybody came across somebody who's using drugs, these people could be referred to a, a, an assessment panel, a therapeutic assessment panel. They would try and figure out if they had a, a substance use disorder, and if they did, to try and link them to treatment. But otherwise, there really wasn't a penalty uh, to speak of for for drug use. And the results over the next 15 years were pretty staggering from, um, you know, from from a global educational point of view, you might say, about drug policy. First off, there wasn't a sudden increase or any kind of increase overall in drug use. So it turned out that people were not abstaining from using marijuana or heroin or cocaine because of fear of the police, that the drivers of drug use are quite different. A second thing, of course, that that became clear or that was driven home by this policy is that there are a lot of people who use illegal drugs who actually don't have a drug problem, right? You know, we in this country have tended to think of illegal drugs as sort of these magical poisons that, you, you know, you touch it once and you become, you know, the worst form of demon, you know, drug addict living on the streets and breaking into cars to feed your habit. Um, we've always known this isn't true, right? I mean, first of all, it's, 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 it's sort of old established fact <laughs> in America that most drug users are employed full time. The picture of sort of that we get from looking at somebody living, you know, in a homeless encampment in Kensington is not the typical drug user. And that has a lot of really important implications, um, which, of course, the Portuguese plan addressed. For one thing, it doesn't make much sense to lock up lots of people 
um, who happen to be using drugs because otherwise they're not causing great harm to society through other people and they're continuing to work and pay taxes. So it's a, a huge waste of money. It's also a, a misdirection of resources to assume that if we find you with marijuana or cocaine, you need drug treatment. I mean, quite possibly you just, you know, were in the wrong place at the wrong time on a Saturday night and got caught doing something that you do, you know, pretty rarely. So, you know, there's a spectrum of drug use um, uh, that ends with what we would call a clinical substance use disorder, where you, your life is overtaken by your drug use and you are um, in serious, you know, health trouble because of it uh, and serious social trouble. But that's not the majority of people, you know, who are using the drugs. Um, and so it's kind of a waste of, of treatment resources to treat everybody as if they're... So that was another thing that happened in Portugal. They stopped wasting resources on people who didn't really have uh, a drug problem. Now, none of this is to suggest that drugs are not a, an important public health problem. We know we're in the midst of an op a long-term opioid overdose crisis, for example, that until COVID was our biggest killer and is still taking too many lives. Um, we all um, probably are aware of people who have, you know, know people in our circle who have alcohol problems or smoking problems or heroin problems, opioid problems. Um, for a proportion of users of every, virtually every drug, there are serious substance use disorder problems and, you know, pathological outcomes. So as a public health person, I have, you know, I, I, I put my goal this way. I would like to reduce the social harms that drugs do, and I would also like to minimize the social harms that our drug policies do. You know, the goal is to get the lowest amount of overall harm. What Portugal discovered, what Oregon has discovered, and I think probably an idea that is sort of seeping through the country, is that while drugs have definitely caused problems for Americans, drug policies have caused as many or more. When we, you know, are arrested, you know, drug, drug enforcement is a racism problem. Black people are much more likely to get caught or stopped and arrested and punished for having marijuana, for example. That's been a big driver and, and for, drug, for drug crimes in general. Taking people who are otherwise getting through life in a sort of fairly decent way working and contributing and maintaining their families and putting them in jail or taking away their cars or fining them or putting them on probation. Those have big costs. And, you know, we also, if we look at, at, at the opioid problem, you know, what happened with overdose was that we said that's a prescription drug problem. And so around 2012 or 2013, we started to really tamp down on prescriptions. But the death rate didn't go down because people could continue to get access to illegal drugs. In many ways, the illegal drugs are less safe than the legal ones. All things being equal, it's better for you to have a prescription to OxyContin than to go out on the street and buy who knows what with fentanyl in it with a much increased risk of death. So overall, what the lesson certainly of Oregon following the lesson of, of, of Portugal is, is that if we treat drug problems and drugs in some way other than as a crime, we're likely to spend less money, have less harm, and, as Portugal found, um, not see any significant increase in drug use. So that's the, that's the big story. Mm -hmm. And I think, too, you've mentioned legalizing and 
a lot of states decriminalized things. Can you break down the difference and kind of what that particularly means, legalizing, decriminalizing medical use? There's so many different things now in the U.S. Well, let's let's think of drug prohibition is like old Coke. It's full of sugar. It's not good for you. It makes you fat. It does terrible things. Decriminalization is like Coke light or something, you know, Diet Coke. It's like we took out a lot of, you know, the bad sugar. It's not the worst. We're not putting people in jail as much. We're not filling up the prisons based on this, we hope. But still, there's a bunch of bad things happening. People still may be getting stopped. We don't really have a way to control the safety of the drug supply and so on and so forth. When you get to legalization, suddenly you're in a world where the criminal justice system is largely out of the picture. So that's like giving up soda altogether. You know, we're just not drinking that stuff at all. And the advantages of legalization and also the challenge of legalization, as we'll see in New Jersey around marijuana, is once you get rid of one method of control, it doesn't mean you don't need a new method of control. So there are a huge number of very practical, basic problems about legal marijuana. Like, do we have a standard dose? You know, do we have any kind of quality control? How do we regulate who sells it? What about these very high-intensity formulations? What about edibles that potentially endanger kids? I mean, there's all sorts of basic regulatory problems that you have to deal with. And the same way with alcohol. You know, we didn't say, well, alcohol is legal after prohibition. Anybody can drink anytime, anywhere, any amount. Any, you know, we actually have rules. And the, the alcohol rules post-prohibition, although they have gradually been chipped away, and although they're you know, I think kind of unpopular, like nobody likes state stores, you know, in Pennsylvania, they're actually pretty effective. To the extent that they are applied, they can reduce per capita consumption, and they can, you know, reduce youth consumption and illegal consumption and so on. So, you know, with marijuana, we got a, the imperative for any state that is legalizing a drug is to say, okay, it's not a crime anymore. What are the rules? And to get those rules in place before industry becomes so powerful that you can't put rules in place politically. Right, right. And you're talking about cannabis a lot. And I think that's one of the things that maybe people have become more tolerant to. That's one of the drugs where people are just, you know, okay, let's legalize it or whatever. Did you see maybe anything that surprised you when it came to medical marijuana laws or recreational marijuana laws this past election? Anything that was surprising to you? No, I think not. I mean, it's pretty clear now. You might think of two stories going on now in drug policy. One is that fairly wonky and intense Portugal story. Like, we should get criminal justice out of drug policy. And then there's the, you know, they might call the, 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 you know, the California dreaming story, you know. Met, legalized marijuana, started out west. You know, there's a good vibe about marijuana. People don't think it's so bad. They know lots of people use it. They're not willing to talk about cocaine or amphetamine or heroin. They, you know, they're, they're not necessarily for the Portuguese model. They just think that marijuana should be treated, you know, differently. So those two different drivers of policy change are kind of going on at the same time, and they're influencing each other, but not necessarily in an easy way. So as you make 
marijuana more legal and nothing happens, then maybe there's more openness to the, the Oregon model, to the Portuguese model. But at the same time, because marijuana is still federally illegal, there are no uniform standards for the marketing and production of legal marijuana. And states are failing, I think largely for political reasons, to develop a robust regulatory approach to legal marijuana or legal medical marijuana. Um, and we have a, just this patchwork of largely insufficient meds across the country. And I think over time, people are going to start, uh, already are starting to see that, you know, marijuana does have dangers. We do have, you know, problems of youth access. We have problems of the high potency. You know, the vaping scare over, uh, you know, e-cigarette devices and the diseases that spread through that is another one. I mean, is that's a product safety issue associated with the industry. So to me, there's a potential that public may start to sour a little bit um, and, and uh, on further legalization because they see the bad effect and they don't see, you know, a public response that's sufficient to those bad event control. But, you know, there, there's a lot of funny stuff going on with marijuana now that is going to have an influence on the public's attitude on the road, for sure. Mm -hmm. I think that's one of the arguments that you hear a lot is that these looser drug laws are going to make drugs seem weaker or seem like they're not as effective uh, to people's lives from a public health and a law standpoint. What's what's kind of the measures that should go in place? Do we have real data or a model that states should be following to kind of get the safety measures, public health? Do we even care about law anymore when it comes to the criminalization part of it? Well, I think that the the idea that we should get the police out of drug policy is a good is the right idea for a lot of reasons, but because criminal justice has done huge harm to American society over the last 40 or 50 years of this war on drugs, and it's had virtually no impact on drug use or the drug business. It's just been a complete failure. So we should get the, we should stop failing. That's step one. Step two, is we, we have an unpopular but effective history of controlling dangerous legal substances exemplified both by tobacco and alcohol law. I say unpopular and in some ways legally challenging because a range of measures popped into place after prohibition as alcohol became more legal. You know, there, and, and we probably remember some of them if we're a little older, run into them now and then. You know, you might have, you know, rules like at the ballpark only 3.2% beer, you know, keep the beer weak in a lot of settings. You know, you have state stores or other mechanisms for restricting access so it's harder to get the drugs. Um, there's ex uh, excise taxes are a huge way to both fund government activities uh, and to reduce consumption of drugs. Alcohol excise taxes were historically very powerful in reducing alcohol consumption, which uh, these taxes have been allowed to, to sort of sink. So they're not really, it's, it, there's more sales tax on a gallon of Coke than there is on a gallon of beer um, or a gallon of whiskey. And then, you know, we've had the age restrictions. For a long time, there were advertising restrictions. The way that alcohol and, and cigarettes could be marketed or require warnings. <clears throat> Excuse me, in recent years, the Supreme Court has become quite negative about any 
kind of restriction on speech or requirement of speech in the form of a warning label. So that's one thing we probably can't do. But defining the doses, assuring quality in the production, you know, avoiding formulations that are particularly dangerous like edibles, things like that. These are all things that can and should be done with with marijuana and which could also form a model ultimately for a legalized approach to other drugs like heroin and amphetamines and so on. And I think the big point, too, is that states are doing this. Portugal's big thing was, right, focusing on treatment. But what have states or municipalities tried already to to make that available. I think I read somewhere that Oregon had one of the lowest out of all of the states had one of the lowest addiction facilities in the state. So how should states be preparing maybe if they're going to focus on treatment? Is there a way that we prepare for that as a country as states start relaxing drug laws? Well, if we're asking the big question, what should we do? Then you have to, you know, do what you have to do in pretty much every kind of health situation, which is to stop looking at what happens at the very end of the process. Somebody has a substance use disorder and ask, what is it? What's going on in our country such that we have so many people, such a high rate in the population of substance use disorder that we have so much drug use and address those. So, I mean, if you have an individual who decides to start using heroin for whatever reason, often it's some kind of self-medication for some untreated condition, psychological or physical, and who eventually develops a substance use disorder and, you know, has a pretty catastrophic life situation, um, that's a tragedy. And you can look at the various factors that influence that person. The doctor gave him a prescription for back pain or whatever else might happen. They lost a job. Um, That's an individual tragic story. But when you have hundreds of thousands or millions of people who are with substance use problems and a much higher rate of, of substance use than in other countries, you have to ask, what's going on in the country? What's the country's story? And for this and many other health problems, the country's story is dramatically rising inequality, which is a marker for lower wages, high stress, job insecurity, poor housing, low educational opportunity, essentially a kind of disenchantment and despair. Opioid deaths have been called deaths of despair, and although it's a bit of an oversimplification, the bottom line is it's, it's fundamentally, in, in important ways, true. We have way too many people for whom drugs are either a necessary self-medication or uh, the most interesting option in their daily life. And if we really want to reduce the toll of drugs in the society, we have to get at those drivers. Uh, so invest, and this is not an immediate fix, but believe me, there are going to be no short-term immediate increases in access to drug treatment. There's not going to be uh, somehow, a, even if you change laws, a sudden change in drug use or drug... We, drug use is a long-term problem, and the long-term solution is to go at the drivers. 50 years ago was the start to the war on drugs in America. Um, do you see the the tide maybe finally turning? Was this election day any type of maybe step 
forward that were were maybe ending this or it seems like you know right like particular states are at least saying look you know I don't know if we lost the war on drugs but you know clearly something's not working let's try something else well I I hope that's what people are thinking I mean we had two different you know the, the big thing here the dramatic thing is Oregon because they fundamentally changed the overall drug policy paradigm. You know, what New Jersey did, you know, what Washington, D.C. did with hallucinogens, I mean, these are just next steps, or the the latest dominoes to fall on a process has been going on for for 15 years now. You know, the marijuana story is the marijuana story. It's not dramatic, uh, except for people in New Jersey, it will make a big change. Um, uh, but, But if we see the the idea you articulate, you know, the recognition that, you know, gosh, we had all those cops doing D.A.R.E. programs. Uh, did we see any reduction in drug use by kids? Oh, no, nothing changed. You know, we arrested millions of people and put them in jail. Have we seen a change in the drug markets? Well, um, heroin's cheaper than it's ever been. You know, these are not indicators of success. So people should be saying what you say, which is let's try something different. And you mentioned the federal level, and we see states kind of experimenting, loosening drug laws. Do you think we could ever see something at the federal level? It feels weird, you know, when something is legal in our country, but we've seen Portugal do it. I mean, is this ever going to be a possible nationwide thing? I think, you know, we've all just had a lesson in the last year on the paralyzing effects of political polarization on especially federal action. In the face of COVID, you know, after an initial decent start with the CARES Act, Congress has has basically done nothing. They just can't get over their partisan difficulties. And one aspect of the partisan problem is that issues are kind of randomly assigned a political valence. You know, so somehow masks became political. And drugs, of course, are the ultimate example of that. Like, it's a litmus test. You know, are you tough on drugs, you know, or, or weak on drugs? And when you have that kind of, of, of weaponized use of an issue, it's really hard to actually look at data and learn what works and what doesn't and then try and put it into practice. So, yeah, I, 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 one has a certain amount of, you know, despair when one looks at Congress and thinks about big problems that need to be solved by creativity and uh, data-informed learning. On the other hand, you know, Congress does things in funny ways. Like with medical marijuana, for a long time, there was a little rider uh, on the annual appropriations bill for the Department of Justice that just said the department may not use any of the funds, uh, you know, allocated under this act to enforce the federal law against medical marijuana. So they just stopped going after medical marijuana businesses because they weren't allowed to spend their money on it. So Congress essentially legalized medical marijuana in an appropriations rider. So there's all sorts of things that Congress can kind of do at a lower level and, of course, that the administration can do through how it manages the DEA and the DOJ. You know, I would expect possibly we'll have a new U.S. attorney in Philadelphia Um, You know, and that new U.S. attorney may take a different view on safe injection sites like Safehouse and maybe will reverse the position that the current 
U.S. attorney in Philadelphia has taken. So there'll be there'll definitely be a lot of federal action. You know, our problem in this country is that we have a lot of big problems that require dramatic change. And tinkering away at the old model is a problem. So what Oregon did is what the United States should do. The federal government should adopt the Oregon model, and we should build from there. But uh, you know, you're right to think that, that, that it's going to be a while um, before the conditions exist when that kind of thinking can happen. Moving ahead just right now, moving forward into the near future, what kind of benchmarks or meaningful maybe numbers or anything like that are you going to be looking at? Or what should people be looking at moving forward with the states kind of taking the first steps? Well, that's a great, I mean, that's a question close to my heart because what we do at the Center for Public Health Law Research is try and promote and conduct research evaluating the effects of these kinds of legal changes on health. And so, for example, we maintain a resource called the Prescription Drug Abuse Policy System that tracks medical marijuana law and turns all the various complicated different provisions of state law into numbers that can be put in large-scale uh, evaluation data sets to figure out, are we seeing more marijuana use? Are we seeing more car accidents involving marijuana? We see, you know, are we seeing uh, reduced arrests of black people on the streets, et cetera? And there's all sorts of questions that we can ask, and I think we should ask because it's important to know what's happening. Obviously, the big one now is going to be Oregon. I hope that if not the federal government, which probably won't, I mean, I wish the National Institute of Drug Abuse would do it, and maybe they will, but certainly, you know, some of the private philanthropies that support health and health research, I hope, will put in money because we should be watching that like a hawk. What happens to people in Oregon now that they're not facing arrest and punishment for drug use? What's going to happen to rates of drug use and, and what's going to happen to the choice of drugs among the illegal drugs? What's going to happen to the municipal budgets and court budgets and prison budgets? What's going to happen to drug treatment demand? As you say, what's going to happen to, to mortality, to drug overdose? We would hypothesize, based on the experience in Portugal, that we're going to see a lot of good numbers. We're not going to see dramatically bad numbers, but those kinds of numbers would be really important to telling us whether that model works in the U.S. and whether it should be expanded to other states. So there's never been a greater need for good drug policy research uh, than there is today, given what Oregon's just done. That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio in depth. You can listen and subscribe to the podcast on the radio.com app or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Charlotte Reese, and we'll have another episode out soon.